at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Today we're joined by Elizabeth Seeger, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge and a research assistant at the Leverholm Centre for the Future of Intelligence. We'll be talking to Elizabeth today about her work in collaboration with the Alan Turing Institute, looking at how informed decision making in democracies is being impacted by modern technology, and in particular how online misinformation has affected the pandemic response. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Nick, thank you for having me. Great. So uh, just like the first question, I guess, before we get into your research is, can you tell us a bit about your background and kind of what led you to end up researching this topic as part of your PhD? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So um, my background, um, I actually started out sort of very far away from this topic. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in uh, bioethics and molecular biology at UCLA, Um, and came to Cambridge to do a master's and then a PhD in philosophy of science um, because I wanted to research bioethics. Um, But after a lot of uh, switching over of topics and doing a lot of research, um, I ended up working on ethics of technology. Um, The link to bioethics was that I was looking at um, medical technologies and the ethics of use of medical technologies. And I started looking at Um, artificial intelligence in medical applications, um, and then eventually just moved completely over to ethics and regulation of technology and AI, um, uh, which got me working with the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge and the Center for the Future of Intelligence, um, which are um, both both at Cambridge. Um, And that's where I got involved in the project that we're going to be talking about today. yeah. So as far as as far as talking about um, the research that this report shows um, in my PhD, it's actually very tangentially related to my PhD. Um, the topic we're discussing is misinformation, uh, disinformation, and um, decision making in democratic societies, and how information security affects effective decision making. Um, and I got into this project. Uh, because of my interest in the theoretical aspects of how technology and our use of technology to distribute and um, derive information uh, affects our decision-making capabilities. So it's a bit of a tangential relationship, but but sort of sidestep over into it. Is it is Did you originally sort of become interested because as someone from a more of a biological background, you're you're interested in behavior and or, or was it more just you just became interested via thinking about the technology and just living in this moment of 
you know, pervasive, you know, yeah. tech and being yeah, in the COVID-19 I think it was, year, of um, course. <laughs> I mean, a wild combination of sort of all of the above. Um, I, yeah, so I did, did a lot of biological and, and pre-medical research in undergrad. Um, but before that, I had actually grown up uh, in San Jose, which is just south of San Francisco, part of Silicon Valley. Um, so I had friends who's growing up, friends whose parents worked at Facebook and Google and Apple, um, and was very much just surrounded by that environment. Um, and so like large tech companies and online information distribution has just always been a topic around where I grew up. We had classes in it in high school and stuff. It's just been a very prevalent topic in my life. So it kind of makes sense that I've come back around. I, I think it's uh, a topic that is, you know, definitely of a lot of interest to this podcast. I mean, we, we kind of, um, it's supposed to be around data science and AI, but all of this, you know, being in alive at this time, we always end up talking in some way about what's going on with social media and, and, and tech in general. <laughs> Seems to be a recurring theme, definitely. Yeah, I think obviously this year in the COVID-19 pandemic has just accelerated so many aspects of misinformation as well, um, which kind of has come up again and again um, in some of our podcasts. Um, so I suppose that kind of leads me on to my next question, um, where we're going to dip into a bit of your research. So the report you've written recently discusses something called an infodemic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this is? Um, and are you mostly talking context of social media or, um, or are you talking about other things as well? Yeah, so I can tell you a bit about infodemic. Um, I think it might help to actually take a step back a little bit towards your last question about how I, but not just myself, but how our team got involved in this project. Um, and then that will sort of lead into discussion on what an infodemic is and how we got into that topic. Um, but the the team that they wrote the report with um, is a team of people from, from all over, really, mostly from the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, um, the DSTL, the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, um, and the Alan Turing Institute. Um, and what happened is back in 2018, um, there was a report that was published called The Malicious Use of AI um, by some people at, at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk um, and people at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. Um, and we, uh, Gavin Pearson from DSTL, got in touch with us and was interested in some of the ideas around um, physical security and political security that we brought up in the report um, about safety and malicious use of artificial intelligence and was specifically interested in understanding how technology more generally could be used to undermine political security and political decision making um, in democratic societies. Um, and that's when we got talking and and that's sort of what brought this report to fruition. Um, I actually joined in the slightly later stage to add theoretical backing to some of the more practical research that was done before I showed up. Um, but this brings us to the idea of an infodemic um, and what the concern was around how technology was used um, and how it interferes with information systems and how we produce and distribute information. Um, so an infodemic um, is actually a term that I've seen most widely used by the World Health Organization. Um, and it, it very simply refers to an overabundance of information. Uh, infodemic just means there's too much information out there 
um, both online and offline. Um, and I think the really interesting thing to note is that an infodemic is not in itself necessarily a bad thing. Having lots of information is is neither good or bad. In fact, in our report, one of the key things that we point out is that information is a key driver in good, well-informed decision-making. Without the information, you just, you can't make the decisions in the first place. Um, and so having lots of information is not the problem. Um, the problem is when there's so much information that it overwhelms our ability to distinguish between what is good information and what bad information is, what information comes from reliable information sources or unreliable sources. Um, yeah, and this is where we run into the problem. We have a very, people in general have a very limited attention capacity. Um, and when you have limited attention, you have to distribute that attention to information. And we have kind of wonky heuristics <laughs> and wonky ways of deciding what information to attend to that does not necessarily align with what information is true and what information is false. I think the even just the, the word itself, infodemic, gives you an indication of the time we're living in. You know, if you were to go back in time to someone from 2005 and be like, oh, one of the problems we're facing is, and it's this made up word that is combining word information with, you know, pandemic, they'd be like, what? The internet's great, right? <laughs> so some of the people who probably worked at the Silicon Valley companies where you're from, <laughs> that's probably what they'd think. Um, so it's an interesting yeah. and potentially quite new problem, um, I guess, throughout most of history. People have not in general, being overwhelmed by huge quantities of information in the way you're describing. Yeah, I, I don't know precisely, though, if that would be true, though. Um, in in writing the report, I, I was finding quotes from, from people back in like the 16th, 17th century complaining about books. Um, the fact that with the in, with the invention of writing and and the distribution of books and 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 printing presses and stuff that suddenly there's so much information and what do we attend to and um, that the human mind is too slippery to hold on to all of it and it overwhelms our reasoning capacities and um, so I, I don't know if it's a new issue I think maybe just the scale of the issue um, is is cha is what's changing and how technology mediates and makes more and more information available and has this ability to target information at people. I guess uh, something uh, on that, like that I, um, something I was researching when, back when I was doing my master's was around uh, the kind of prevalence of media, but it was like focused on the early 2000s and the whole thing was around um, the 24-hour news cycle and how that was new and everyone was having overload and things like Fox News Channel. It was like people were going into isolated bubbles of getting 24 hours of just their viewpoint. Um, so I guess it's something that's, maybe been getting worse but it was there before or i guess it's been around longer than we think goes goes all the way back to the 17th century for, <laughs> for some for some people at least yeah so i don't think necessarily that the information overabundance itself is new it's probably a bit worse um i think the issue is how that overabundance is coming into play and and what's causing it um and uh, and even more so with the use of, of different information technologies to distribute information um, are the ways that we decide just naturally what information to attend to or what information sources we think are trustworthy or reliable. Um, they, they don't necessarily work when we're trying to figure out whether or not to trust information that's being mediated by technologies. Um, 
for for example, um, people are really uh, predisposed to believe things that more people believe. If you see that a larger group of people believe in a certain a certain idea or a certain thought, um, you'll be more likely to to agree with it. Um, where in social media platforms, you can have these these bubbles of thought be created, um, and if you're stuck in that bubble you will feel like that idea is actually very widely accepted and then and then become more strongly attached to it. Um, or you might have really, really small ideas or, or opinions that are held by a very minority community, but if they can use technologies to distribute them really widely and really quickly, um, they suddenly look more widely accepted than they would actually be. So the ways that we traditionally kind of decide whether or not to believe your neighbor, the guy down the street, stop working <laughs> um when when a lot of technologies come into play cool yeah it, it I, it's going back to what you said about the difference between how it's a more widespread problem now i guess the the big difference is that it affects everyone i mean we live in a world where not i mean compared to the 17th century everyone's literate and uh and now almost everyone's online and certainly in the advanced democracies we're talking about you know literally everyone's online um and you know and their vote counts, and so the information they consume matters. Um, so th thinking about that and talking about some of the, the, the themes you're just talking about um, around social media, um, you've um, your report talks about uh, two different sort of categories of people who are who are responsible for spreading information and, uh, in this case, misinformation online. Um, you, you talk about adversaries and blunderers. Um, who who are these people, and can you give examples of the the ways that they either spread misinformation or unwarranted alarm? Uh, adversaries and blunderers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, adversaries is actually quite a common term that's used to describe people who intentionally um, manipulate information. Um, or or fabricate information uh, specifically in order to deceive or manipulate information recipients or to try and influence them towards a certain decision. Um, the key point with the term adversaries, though, is that is that there is malintent. Um, the the intention is bad. <laughs> it is to deceive and to manipulate. The the um, that is that's the goal of the adversary. Um, so an example of this might be like if, um, say, a political group uses something like deep fake technology to fabricate videos of various politicians in order to manipulate an election in their favor or something. Um, in this case, the adversaries are, are intentionally creating information and distributing information with the intention of misleading people and manipulating their decision-making capacities. Um, and so that's what an adversary does. Um, blunderer is actually a term that we kind of made up for the purpose of this report um, to, to describe the people that manipulate information and interfere with information systems um, but do it either out of good intention or or just do it accidentally. Um, but the the key point that we want that we draw out in the report is that whether you're talking about adversaries or you're talking about blunderers, um, what we're concerned with is the consequence of their action. The fact that 
information systems are are made um, unstable and that false information or partial information is distributed more widely, whether that's intentional with malintent or whether someone had good intentions or whether they did it accidentally. Um, an example of a blunderer who perhaps had good intentions in their interference with an information system. Um, I don't say you have a, a vaccine researcher who thinks that a vaccine has a, uh, there's, there's a slight chance of an adverse side effect. Um, and, and they, they write a little thing about it, you know, no big deal, but they, they write about it. And then someone else somewhere else, um, picks it up and thinks that it's a bit, a bit too alarmist. And then, and then suddenly you have an anti-vax campaign splashing up somewhere, um, based on something that this vaccine researcher said, um, which was just interpreted to be a bit alarmist. So there we had good intention. Maybe it was accidental. Um, you could think uh, an example of an accidental blunder could be a computer science student um, exploring, uh, I don't know, deep fake technologies or natural language processing systems and developing something really cool that can uh, write news stories or something out of the blue. And then that ends up proliferating fake stories that are actually taken seriously by some people. Um, we're not so much concerned in our report with whether the intention to spread uh, false information or partial information is is good or bad or, or whether it's completely accidental, more the fact that information systems have vulnerabilities that can be targeted and manipulated um, and, and how that might occur. But, but um, I think the, the, the distinction is really interesting because... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of people are aware of this problem now. It's kind of got some mainstream traction. There's like, there's there's like there's been like a Netflix documentary about you know misinformation and 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 how that affects Facebook and so on. But um, I think a lot of people probably think that okay, the main problem is these malicious actors, um, whether it's a foreign government or a political party or some other group that's just yeah producing fake news intentionally. But what you've also highlighted is that there are also these these blunderers, you know, people who who are not necessarily trying to spread uh, some false information. But you know, I mean, another example that 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 comes to mind for me, um, you mentioned like a yeah vaccine researcher. I'm imagining like you know any you know climate researcher or person who thinks about climate policy who is legitimately like critical of of like particular policies that are being taken or saying that that's the wrong particular you know we, we should in, invest in 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 this in nuclear energy instead of solar panels or something or whatever they're saying mm-hmm. but then that might get picked up by you know climate quote-unquote skeptics and say well it's you know this is fuel to the fire of saying that it's all just a hoax and it doesn't matter really um uh, but that, that seems like it might yeah, be. Yeah, it reminds me of like the climate gate scandal, sort of. Right, exactly. W- was yeah. that a specific thing you're thinking of? Um, no, just in in response to what you were saying, it was kind of reminding me that of the climate gate scandal, where you know emails were released about um, about right, climate research, right. and uh, and then those emails were were picked up, and and people were saying like, oh, this shows that climate scientists aren't really sure what they're talking about, and they're manipulating models. Um, when really it was an informal back and forth about between scientists just 
discussing how how models are created and and what's a completely normal um discussion around setting threat like evidence thresholds and stuff so i so i guess you you said you mentioned that it's uh the main focus for you is although you've you've made that distinction and and i've suggested it's quite important that you're 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 more you're more concerned about just the fact that it's happening um yeah i mean but the, the distinction is very important it's not um, not something that really we really harped on in the report, um, but I think it, it is very important. The f- and it's very important to be aware that um, that you can spread misinformation without any intention. Even if you have good intention, you could be spreading um, misinformation. Um, and and to be be aware of this is the first step to. Um, to educating people about about what it is and and how to not contribute to the problem, um, it's like you start seeing classes pop up in um, like primary schools and secondary schools about how to spot uh, misinformation or or false news stories and and like training children to then not go and retweet those or, or share them on Facebook. Um, so it is an important problem. Um, it actually goes back to the distinction between misinformation and disinformation, which are often um, discussed interchangeably. Um, but misinformation is the overarching picture, which is just false or partial information that can be misleading. Um, but disinformation specifically talks about information that is intentionally put out there to mislead or deceive. Um, and so that sort of aligns with our distinction between adversaries and blunders. And I guess an- another sort of synonym for disinformation then would be almost propaganda, or maybe it's maybe it's a slightly different definition, I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it would definitely fall under disinformation, um, possibly. I guess it would depend. Uh, the interesting thing about propaganda is that it's not necessarily untrue. Um, sometimes it's just that very specific things are reported on. But like I said, um, even partial reporting can be a form of disinformation if it is done such that it can manipulate people to an opposite conclusion or a false conclusion. So I think it does sort of all fall under the same topic. I think there's, in a way, there's not even a a bright line always because in reporting anything, any kind of information, whether you're a legitimate journalist or scientist or anyone you're still at the end of the day choosing which are you think the most important facts or data to report and how that how you're going to frame it um yeah and that is a that's a really good observation um that yeah one one key thing that i think people don't don't realize is that the information you receive however you receive it is almost always manipulated unless unless you yourself observed the event the information you receive will be filtered, manipulated in some way. Um, the hope is that it was not manipulated in a way that will deceive you or drive you to a conclusion that you would not have made if you were able to reason properly using reliable information. Um, but but rarely do you ever make decisions or rarely can you even claim to know something <laughs> that that you didn't learn through some sort of manipulated information source. Yeah, and that just goes down back to you know the fundamental reality of of science and being alive in twenty first century is that we can't go out and do all of the particle physics and 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 you know do all of the experiments ourselves because at some point either you've got to go deep into a subject or you've got to 
accept on trust um, that yeah. some some authority of one kind or another or expertise actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't do very much at all if we had to do everything ourselves, would we? <laughs> Building on that, like um, in terms of like not having access to all the information. Um, I know you touched on social media bubbles a little bit before, but could you tell us a bit more about that as sort of a spreader of information or disinformation? Because I guess that's a way that facts and news is sort of filtered down to people in a very limited way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so social media bubbles, um, like we were talking about before, is basically when, or not even necessarily on social media, but but filter bubbles are. Which, which happen a lot on social media. Um, it's just instances in which you sort of get surrounded by the same information, oftentimes from people who already agree with you, and you don't end up hearing much about other opinions. Um, and part of the reason this is such a problem um, is because it interferes with our decision-making capabilities. Um, and this is what we're concerned with in the report, is, is how can we coordinate um, timely and effective decision-making um, in this report specifically in order to respond to crisis scenarios. Um, and um, and the reason filter bubbles are such a problem is because it limits the access to information that you have. If you're only getting information from people that already agree with you, um, then you arguably don't have all the information that you would need in order to reason to a well-reasoned conclusion and make a decision. Um, so in a way, filter bubbles infringe on your reasoning capabilities. If you don't have the raw material to reason well, which is good information, then you won't reason well. You won't, you won't reason to, um, to the kind of decision you might have made if you had all the good and if you had the right information in the first place. Um, so that's the first thing that these sort of social media bubbles, filter bubbles do, is they limit access to information just by continuously feeding you the same stuff. Um, and part of the problem with that, part of the reason it's such a big problem, is um, that people naturally gravitate towards filter bubbles. Um, they, we like we like to listen to people that we already agree with. Um, we like to agree with things that validate our thoughts. And, um, and so we get sucked into these filter bubbles, uh, very easily. Um, it, it's kind of natural though, if, you know, if you go back, I mean, 50 years, but hundreds of years, just the further you go back, the smaller our communities were. And, um, and so we sort of embed ourselves in these smaller communities of like-minded people. So it's a natural thing to happen. Um, but when there's so much information out there, um, it can make it difficult to, to coordinate decision-making in, in large groups of people um, when, when different subsets of that group of people are stuck in different bubbles. Um, you know, if you're trying to get the entire population to wear face masks or take a vaccine, um, if you're if, if different subsets of that population are stuck in these little bubbles that only deal with certain bubbles of information, um, then they're not all reasoning on the same plane or with the same information. And it just it, it drastically reduces the chances of them coming to a similar conclusion or agreeing on on any kind of action to take. Um, yeah, so I hope that didn't have, I hoped that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I think there's a weird incentive on on social media for, especially on things like Twitter, where you have people with followers rather than just friends. Um, 
where you get people who have loads of followers um yeah and i guess there's an incentive to like say things or or post things which are gonna get them loads of likes or retweets or or or, you know attention um and of course if you're a, a savvy influencer you can obviously profit from that as well which makes it even more you know like a feedback loop um and i think yeah there's there's this whole thing around people who are in that situation where they're starting to profit off their their followers um the the be making that um social media bubble even more self-reinforcing just saying the same things which are going to get them get them those those likes and, and ultimately the you know the ability to like put advertisements which will make them money is just very tempting <laughs> yeah absolutely and that sort of falls in with with the other point we were talking about um where as a social media bubble, as a as a filter bubble um, <laughs> grows in size, um, it can it can make ideas or or thoughts or perspectives that were like that nobody really took seriously at all, um, because maybe they were just sort of I don't know like a flat Earth people. <laughs> like oh, flat I was just thinking Earth that stuff. like before yeah. before YouTube. I mean, there must have been obviously some people who were just, you know, thought that because of lack of education in the world. But I can't imagine there was much of a community in like developed countries of flat earthers before. Yes, but but the communities develop and you take these ideas that are that are that are just they're, they're minor in that in that not many people holds them or takes them seriously. And then suddenly you get this filter bubble spinning around them. And and the more people that take the idea seriously the more people take the idea seriously and it just keeps growing. <laughs> Reading your report, a term that comes up, you know, a lot is something called epistemic security. Um, you know, this is something that I wasn't entirely sure what it meant originally. Um, would you be able to explain exactly what it does mean for people listening at home and the steps you recommend for governments to improve it? Yeah, so epistemic security, um, understandably a, a confusing confusing term if to be honest i didn't i didn't know what epistemic meant until a good year into my phd <laughs> um, so yeah sure so so maybe not a great choice of words for a public facing report um but um so epistemic um comes comes from the word epistemology um and epistemology is the study of knowledge um very generally it is the study of how we come to know what we know um how we know what we don't know, how we don't know what we don't know. Um, it, it gets very esoteric and, and out there. Um, but very generally, epistemology is the study of knowledge. Um, and so we chose the term epistemic security because we were interested in how do we make our knowledge systems secure? How can we make sure that when we get information, that 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 information constitutes knowledge or something close to it. It's, it's good, reliable information. Um, and we want to make sure that in producing information and distributing information and evaluating information, that all of those steps on the way to eventually taking information and doing something with it, um, that, that those are secure, that they're not being influenced by adversaries, that they are robust to adversarial threats, 
um, that, you know, how do we make sure that we're not eroding trust in our information systems of production and exchange? How do we decide what information systems, uh, I mean, what information sources are, are reliable and trustworthy and which ones aren't? And what kind of heuristics or, or, or features and characteristics do we use to decide that? Um, and, uh, and so that's why we use the term epistemic security. It's I guess a nice translation would be knowledge security. Um, we didn't want to use the term information security because it's already taken. Um, and it, it's specifically information security specifically means um, it, it specifically pertains to making sure that information is, is secure, that private information stays private, um, that people can't get access to information they're not supposed to get access to or manipulate information they're not supposed to manipulate. Um, so it falls under the banner of what we're calling um, epistemic security, but the term information security was already taken, so we're not using it. Um, uh, another another feature of epistemic security, though, um, is that we aren't just focusing on this single line of information is produced, information is distributed, information is used to make a decision. Um, information systems, or epistemic systems, knowledge systems of how information is produced and distributed are extremely complex networks um, and interconnected networks that have tons of places where there could be vulnerabilities to adversarial influence or blunder influence. Um, and there are many, many threats to these systems. Um, and so we needed an, an overarching term to sort of encapsulate all the problems that that people talk about when they talk about misinformation and disinformation and information security and fake news and, and a way to sort of all get it under the same umbrella so that we could talk about it at the same time. You know, they're, they're talked about as these individual problems, but they're all interconnected. Um, and that's what the term epistemic security is, is trying to, to, to get at is the fact that, that it's actually one giant problem and we can take a step back and do more of a holistic overview of what these systems look like and where their vulnerabilities are. So, uh, the, so yeah. Sorry the the second sorry, the second part of what what Jay was saying there was um, how can we improve it, right? Um, yes. I just yeah. I, I just I just a, a quote came to mind. Um, I believe, and I could be wrong in this, that this is a English translation quote of of uh, Vladimir Putin but he apparently said that nothing is true and everything is possible um which would i guess in this terminology make him rather epistemically insecure <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, i think that's a that's a good uh, conclusion to draw there um yeah so yeah epistemically an an epistemically insecure society or, or person, I suppose you could say, would be one that is very easily manipulated or infringed upon such that the information flowing through it could or could not be true. Um, and it just makes it very difficult to to organize collective action or collective decision-making decision or to come to any kind of consensus um, in an epistemically insecure society. Um, and, and also, I guess, the, the, the purpose behind any particular spread of information is is uncertain yeah um yeah that too um and i think it's it's good to keep in mind that you know we do live in an epistemically insecure society um 
and that epistemic security is is very much this ideal that we reach for but but because of the complexity of our information systems um it's a very difficult ideal to reach um the important part is just that we need to take a step back and look at the larger system the larger epistemic system or information system um and try and and figure out how to strengthen it and make it more robust. Um, and so as you're mentioning, you know, in the report, we, we come up with a few recommendations of how to do this. And they are, they are quite general to start out with. We recommend things like, um, having methods for increasing costs to adversaries or blunders in supporting or in spreading unsupported information. Um, something like this could be, fines or penalties um, to platforms that don't have some sort of way to um, to fact check or, or to keep a, keep tabs on on what kind of things are being being said by people um, or or just fines and penalties for people that are knowingly putting forth just blatantly false information um, uh, you know it's it's difficult because there are freedom of speech issues but it's an idea to be explored. Um, we talk about things like um, methods for helping information consumers um, identify what information is trustworthy or not. You know, this is a key thing that we talk about is especially with emerging technologies being used to mediate technology and distribute technology is it's very difficult to identify what information sources we should listen to if our normal heuristics of just sort of looking at someone and saying, oh, you, you look sincere. <laughs> they don't work. <laughs> and so... Um, so how can we help people identify trustworthy information source? And this might have something to do with um, having different ways of credentialing information sources as trustworthy information sources or as um, epistemically responsible information sources. So an information source that does what it can to make sure that it's distributing like fact-checked, reliable information. And if you can put that credentialed stamp on it, then that just acts as a signal. People can say, oh, that's, that's a good source. Um, but I think like the most interesting kinds of suggestions that we put forward in the report, at least for me, um, were the ones where we talked about the fact that the world does not lack epistemic security experts. Um, it's not like we're starting from scratch here. There are tons of people out there. These are the, the journalists and the legal scholars and scientists and psychologists and um, information security experts. Um, and they study things like how do people consume information and what what are good evidential thresholds for deciding whether or not something constitutes knowledge or is should or is a good reliable theory. Um, and and if we can bring these people together under the same umbrella and you know, we, we have a really good pool of resources to pull from. We just need to identify who these people are. Um, and we're thinking, you know, possibly put together some kind of a of a network, um, maybe even a, a, as its own discipline, epistemic security as its own discipline, where we, I don't know, keep tabs on <laughs> who these people are, what kind of work they do, uh, what kind of capacity they would have to to help respond to crises um, and and how misinformation or infodemics um, to go back to the beginning influence these crises? Um, I think that's just that's that's sort of the the silver lining here is that we're not we're not starting from scratch. There are a lot of people thinking about these issues. Epistemic security as a term as a field provides a really nice opportunity to bring everyone that study these issues and related issues together 
to have the same conversation. Um, and that's that's sort of the thrust of what we're pushing for in the report. Um, it's kind of a high level idea, but it's I think it's an important starting point, uh, an important thing to recognize. Do you um, think that as like a real life example, uh, how, say, Twitter tries to counteract misinformation um, in the American election by flagging tweets that mm-hmm. called states as not being true or any sort of attempts at fraud or saying that like, there's no evidence for this. Do you think like, that's a good example of people trying to counteract threats to epistemic security? Or do you think that that didn't go far enough? I think it is personally. Um, I don't want to speak for all the authors on the report, but I personally think that it's um, it's a good step. It's It's one of these these ways of helping people identify trustworthy information sources, um, sort of to help flag things that might not be reliable. Um, and that's especially important given that it can be very difficult to tell sometimes news stories that are just completely fabricated or statements that are completely false. Um, and so I think that it's, it is a very good first step. Um, I think in future, it'd be nice to take it, take it further, um, maybe actually back it up with, fact-checking capabilities. Don't just flag it and say, hmm, contentious, maybe not. Um, but have a way of maybe having some sort of, I mean, my my thoughts right now <laughs> that are bubbling up, but have a way of don't just tag it with dispute and claim, tag it with dispute and claim, see such and such fact-check or something like that um, so that people can, it's just convenient to check on it. Um, yeah. But again, you know, you you do run the risk of just overwhelming people even more with even more information. Um, It is a very complex, circular problem. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating problem. Uh, I, I, yeah, and we definitely want your your opinions, not just not just the uh, the, the formal academic research, like <laughs> on these like the real world examples. I mean, to to go back to Rachel's uh, example she just mentioned of the um, of Twitter. Um, yeah, they now on some tweets have a a little a little label that says this this yeah. this is disputed or this isn't true. So yeah, yeah. Mo- most famously, like during the U.S. election campaign this was popping up on a lot of trump's tweets and yeah the 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 immediate problem i think there is that if i look at that i already trust twitter more than donald trump and so i'm inclined to be like oh right well i'll just disregard everything he's saying here and yet i imagine if if you were one of his followers you'd be like oh well i already trust donald trump more than i trust twitter so i'm just going to disregard all all of these uh, warnings (laughs) Yeah, and it kind of goes back to that idea of, of people do gravitate towards um, towards the communities they already agree with. Um, and, and it was brought up earlier, you know, especially when things are, are tense and people are, when people are scared and worried and tensions are high and there's a lot of anxiety, um, as, as people will turn into their bubbles, um, into their communities, into the groups that already agree with them, that they already agree with, um, that validate their thoughts and their worries. Um, and, and that is completely natural. Um, but it's how to break into that with, with good information. And, and like, like you said, it's, it's difficult when, if you put a blatant marker on Trump's tweet that says, this is just blatantly (laughs) false. Um, but people look at it and go, oh no, I'm I'm sure it's true. I trust Trump. (laughs) And it's just like, ah, how does that work? Part of the difficulty here as well is who's putting those warnings on. I mean, um, yeah, we, you know, you, 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 you talk about in this research, this is obviously a problem for 
democracies and and the people who run mm-hmm. democracies are the governments but then the people who run the platforms are private social media companies from from your part of the world <laughs> uh, not not necessarily from uh, from our part of the world and uh, but for for whatever reason we've we've all ended up using them um so yeah i mean do you do you, th- do you see that your recommendations ultimately have to be aimed towards governments or they or they also aim towards tech companies and just websites in general yeah i mean that's a that's a very good point um i think i think that they should be aimed towards tech companies as well um and it's one thing that we do kind of side well, sidestep we acknowledge that we're not going to talk about it and then don't talk about it um, in the report is that when we talk about adversarial actors in information systems, people that are intentionally trying to manipulate information, um, that sometimes the adversary is the government. That's totally possible. Um, and and it, and it has happened um, that, that, the, yeah, that the adversarial actor can be the government. And so in this report, we do assume, we, we take the assumption that the people, especially the, the report is aimed mainly towards policymakers and and government institutions. Um, and so we take the position in the report that we are assuming that the government is is not this adversarial actor and that <laughs> the, the government institutions we're, we're aiming this report towards are the groups that want to defend epistemic security, that want to make sure information systems are secure because secure information systems are the foundation to a democracy in which people can reason well with good information. Um, but it is absolutely the case that that a government could be the adversarial actor. Um, and and that does complicate the issue. And, and, and when you talk about Silicon Valley firms like Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, these may be developed in the US democratic society, but they're not necessarily used in democratic societies and can be used to by governments for governments um, to perpetuate false information. Um, so it's, I think it's a, it's a very good point. Um, something we did not address so much in the report, um, but it is a very good reason that, that some of these recommendations about um, specifically about perhaps like landing costs on people that, that just blatantly put false information out and get, having some way of introducing a penalty for that um, is perhaps something that could be regulated on a on an institutional level um you know but but even that's very contentious um you know who's to say that that facebook is the one who should decide what information is is good and reliable and should go out there and what kind of information should be fined or not um you know it's a very complicated problem but i think there's something to be said also for not just leaving it on the government's doorstep um because it's not always the case that that places where these technologies are used are going to be places where the government is is not an adversarial actor in an information system. So it's very complex. Um, but that that issue is one that we very early on the report acknowledged that we were assuming that the government was a defender of systemic security and we just kind of <laughs> didn't go there. Um, right, right. But definitely something that needs to be talked about. Yeah, and I, I guess another problem is that um, even if there was a government that respected epistemic security and came up with appropriate regulations for um, the social media companies, um, then they may or may not um, implement them. I mean, they're international companies. 
Um, and then if it's the social media companies doing it themselves, well, then their competitors might be like, well, you know, the, these, the, you know, Facebook over here is getting pretty restrictive on your free speech. So come over to us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, not an, not an easy problem at all. Um, I mean, which does speak towards having more of a high up oversight at a government level. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It gets, it's a very interesting conversation to have. And, um, one we did not get too far into on that level in the okay. report um, beyond touching on some of these topics. Let me ask you one thing, another question that, that I think you did address in the report a little bit. Um, yeah. So so obviously we're the Turing podcast and we're, we're interested in everything AI related. Um, so how might machine learning algorithms, um, for instance, those used to create deep fakes, but other things as well, um, how might those be used to further undermine public trust and and um, yeah, spread inf- misinformation? Yeah, absolutely. So we did we did touch on this in the report a bit, um, looking at machine learning um, and AI systems and and how they influence information systems and how they can be used to undermine um, information systems. Um, and we give a few examples. Um, uh, specifically with regard to undermining trust. Um, and I think that like deep fakes provide a very nice example um, just in that, you know, people have, we, we have natural ways of evaluating whether or not we trust an information source. They're just sort of like naturally ingrained. They're not necessarily the most reliable, very fallible in fact, um, but like throughout evolutionary history have, have generally served us well. Um, and some of those things are like, if we hear a person say it directly or we see something happen with our own eyes, um, we, we're we more willing to accept it as, as true, as good information. If we can feel some sort of connection with a person who is saying something, we're more likely to accept it as true. Where if you have um, something like deep fake technologies where you can take a respected politician or some other public figure and have them just say something, um, it, it undermines this ability that we have or this, this inclination we have to say, well, I heard it from the source because we no longer know if the source is in fact the source, even if you see it happen, um, you know, as it used to say, a picture's worth a thousand words. Um, when we could, then you could start uh, uh, photoshopping, <laughs> and and now we can photoshop videos essentially, um, and and so it undermines some just like natural heuristics that we have for evaluating whether or not an information source is trustworthy. Um, on a similar plane, um, you could talk about natural language processing systems. Um, you know people speculate that, you know, if a natural language system is, is good enough, it'll be indistinguishable from talking to another human. Um, and in this case, that means, that means that the system is replicating vocal patterns and speech patterns. And, um, and we don't necessarily realize that we do it, but in listening to someone talk, you often just get this feeling of, oh, that person knows what they're talking about, or that person's trustworthy, or, you know, I get a feel that that person would be sincere. Um, and if that can be mimicked and regulated, uh, I mean, if that can be mimicked regularly um, by a, a natural language processing system, um, it that doesn't necessarily mean that the information we're getting actually is good, is trustworthy. Um, it's It's really interesting, you know, oftentimes you can tell when a person lies, because lying is a a lot harder than telling the truth. You have to think up of the lie. <laughs> you have to make sure you get all the details right. 
um, where an AI system wouldn't necessarily be constrained in the same way. And so the tiny things that we pick up on in humans where we can say, mm, let me let me think about that a little bit more, um, we might not get those same kind of cues. Um, so that's another way that you know, it's just undermining our ability to use our natural trust heuristics. Um, you know, AI systems, uh, machine learning algorithms are also used um, to target information towards people on social media sites to target information. Like, you know, this is something you've looked at that uh, that you were interested in, in the past. Here's more stuff like it. Um, it can definitely perpetuate building filter bubbles um, where you just get further and further ingrained in just the little areas of information that you already agree with. Um, right. On the flip side, there's something to be said that, uh, you know, similar systems could be used to try and expose people to a greater variety of information. Um, how or if that should be used is another very contentious point. Um, you know, who is Facebook to say that I've looked at too many points that I already agree with? So here's something you don't agree well, with. That, that, um, that's a really interesting yeah. thing you've raised there, because the example I was just thinking of was, uh, the YouTube recommendation algorithm. So mm -hmm. as most people know, when you watch a YouTube video, often it auto plays a suggestion straight afterwards. And some people have, um, I guess this is exactly the sort of thing you've just been describing, um, said that when you get, yeah, like certain kinds of political videos, it ends up recommending you like more extreme versions of that political point and it goes down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. um, but, and perhaps that's just because um, you know, due to people being uh, more more likely to click on things which they find you know outrageous or 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 interesting in that way. But you, you know, that's because they at the moment they're trying to make as much money as possible by getting okay. as, much, as many adverts watched as possible. So they're just maximizing viewer time, mm -hmm. even if that's at the cost of um, showing people really silly videos or extreme videos. But what you're saying yeah. is that they what they could do is that they could show people the opposite opinion or some other like or, or like a fact checking video could be auto played afterwards, uh, for instance. Um, I, and I I would argue, yeah, what, what you've what you've said is that people might be annoyed by that or people, <laughs> people might find it controversial, but it's probably mm -hmm. it's probably less controversial than what's happening now. <laughs> yeah, poss possibly. Um yeah, it's a very interesting topic to discuss, um, and there's some there's some really interesting philosophical work about it, um, especially people talking about uh, like autonomous decision making. Actually, people will say people argue that that like these filtering problems or, or recommendation systems that say watch this next, watch this next, or that um, automatically fill in something that you're trying to search on Google and right. recommends like oh this is what you meant by the second half of your word, um, that it actually it just it narrows your thought process just in in lieu of it giving recommendations like that is it it sort of tells you it not only directs you to to certain sources of information but it's almost like telling you what you should be thinking about what kinds of things you should be searching um yeah so there's really really interesting discussions around that um it's a rabbit hole I could go down. <laughs> yeah, and another interesting example that springs to mind is when I've seen on Twitter, um, I, and probably this is on other social media as well, sometimes when you get people in other languages, um, it will like automatically show you the translation. Um, and obviously that's an auto-generated translation. And like, yeah. as much as I love Google Translate for like the 
like interacting with people in the shop and 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 like issuing instructions where the nuance doesn't really matter um Mm -hmm. if you're talking about like some foreign politician online and you see they've said something like quite scary sounding but actually it's just a bad translation (laughs) i mean that's yeah (laughs) it's quite scary to think about yeah Yeah, it's quite Um, it is quite scary to think about I was just going to ask a question to 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 the group because um, we started this 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 part talking about deep fakes. Um, I'll ask you first, Elizabeth. Um, do you? I, I've seen like examples of the deep fake technology where they tell you this is deep fake, and I've never been, you know, convinced. Like they is always you can always tell. But I'm wondering, do you think that you've ever? seen a deep fake and not known like in the wild (laughs) yeah i mean i i mean i guess the point is that i don't know (laughs) um but um i i'm thinking like as they are right now i'm sure that well i won't say i'm sure i mean i hope i'm sure i could be completely wrong but i hope that if i were to see one right now that if i really scrutinized it enough i'd be able to say no like you said i'm not buying it um but i think the power of them isn't that people sit there and scrutinize, like you don't sit down and scrutinize every video you see to try and decide whether or not it's a deep fake. For the most part, you'll be flipping through Facebook or Twitter and things will start autoplaying and and suddenly there's a clip of Obama saying something that you're kind of watching out of the corner of your eye as you flutter through and you just see the caption. And that's that's enough to get you thinking, to get you thinking, oh, I don't agree with that or, oh, that was a stupid thing to say. If you're just scrolling by it, does it matter if it's perfect or not? Um so I mean, I, it's quite possible that I've come across those and just not noticed. I hope mm, not. Yeah, <laughs> R- Rachel, what do you think? Do you think you've uh, inadvertently been fooled and not noticed, or or no? I don't think so, but I did. Um, so I specialised in media bias as my sort of area when I was doing my masters and things. So having read an awful lot of books about that I think I tend to be someone who goes and reads from a lot of different news sources and also if I see something that's like oh that sounds really weird I'll tend to be like oh just check on the BBC and the Guardian and the (laughs) Times and stuff just to see if anyone else has written about it but then I think so I don't think I have been fooled because I think I tend to be quite a distrust anything on social media like that as like a rule of thumb Um, but again you don't know really I mean if something it's the confirmation bias as well, isn't it? So it's like if something was completely in line with what I believed politically and believed um, like ethically and like I thought someone was bad, for example, and then there's the thing showing them was that they were bad. I don't know if I would question that. So it's hard to know, really. Hmm. What do you, what do you think, Jay? Have you, do you think you may have seen any or not? Not knowingly, but then, you know, I kind of, I like to think that I would be able to tell if one... <laughs> you know existed but then maybe my own arrogance will (laughs) thwart me in the end and I think you know as Elizabeth said it's the kind of you know this subconscious um, or the kind of unconscious videos that are the ones that are the most dangerous because you're not paying full attention to them and like you know everyone's guilty of just kind of scrolling through stuff now half consuming it half thinking about something else half thinking about what we're going to cook for dinner (laughs) You know, and you, you know, you're not paying full attention to everything that you consume online, or at least I don't. So, you know, on the flip side of that, maybe I have. Um, yeah, I think I think people like to think they they haven't been kind of fooled by them, but then 
maybe Who that knows? yeah is, is causing Who the problem. Yeah. I was going to say that's that is the problem. <laughs> it kind of raises interesting kind of conversation conversations around you know kind of what's an individual's responsibility when it comes to kind of disinformation and misinformation. You know, yeah, there's one thing kind of government policy and you know social media platforms being regulated but equally it you know though we know that that's probably not happening quick enough so you know is there something individually we should all be doing maybe we should be like Rachel (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say if only more people were like you Rachel (laughs) yeah I think um it's that yeah I think no one likes to think they're being fooled though and I think uh just thinking back to the report like some of the examples were like you know people making deep fake videos of like terrorist attacks and I think most people would or a lot of people would see that and go oh god and try and find out more information about it but then if it's something like talking about like character assassination if it's something about someone you didn't mm-hmm. like doing something that wasn't like really bad but kind of like a minorly like an embarrassing thing for them you probably would just be like oh I would probably be like oh that's funny and skip past and not really think yeah. any more about yeah. it so I guess it's like the low level ones are the kind of maybe the more dangerous yeah, because the they're ones the ones that just that... kind of chip away at someone's reputation <laughs> yeah yeah because they're not big yeah. enough or serious enough for you to feel like anyone would necessarily lie about it in that way mm-hmm. another example like that i've seen is where people have um used whatsapp groups to send like screenshots of of social media and this is much easier than a like a deep fake video right but it was like of a of a politician of a particular british politician and the thing that the screenshot was like that he tweeted was almost plausible but i i i thought no he wouldn't have said that but <laughs> it was just it wasn't like so crazy um that yeah. people wouldn't believe it yeah and if you're already of the mind to like want to agree with that or want to believe Mm. it it's more likely that that you will yeah exactly um i I, i've got an example of being fooled by uh, a deep fake but then it was revealed um within within the video (laughs) itself so there was (laughs) so not that long ago there was i think most of you will probably would have heard of the boston dynamics robots so they're the Mm -hmm. they're these sort of like four-legged there's like dog-shaped ones and human-shaped ones yeah spots the dog one yeah Yeah. um but there's what there is one that's like um a bipedal humanoid one and it can like lift up boxes and stuff in real life it it can do like running and stuff now it's quite good but in this video and what they've done here sneakily is that it's not just that it's an amazing deep fake it's that the video is like slightly low quality so it actually makes it which makes it slightly harder to to notice that mm-hmm. that that it's that it's CGI and that it's not a real video but the 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 demonstrators the humans in the video are doing what the Boston Dynamics people do in other videos which is that they're like hitting it with a hockey stick and they're like pushing the box out of its hands so it has to bend down and pick it up again and stuff so they're being kind of mean um, but that's actually what they do in some of the real videos. Um, but then what happens in this video is <laughs> is that the the robot suddenly um, starts fighting back, and at first it like hits them a bit, but then it starts like busting out the karate moves, and then at that point you realise, oh, this is not a real video. But 
for like a couple of minutes you're thinking like wow they're really going to town on this on this robot they're really giving it a hard time <laughs> just, yeah you just think like oh, yeah yeah it, it, it's it's plausible until until the person who made the video decided that they're going to reveal to you that it's just too it's just too ridiculous to be true but yeah i mean and we're, we're laughing now like oh that's that's funny um yeah except that it has kind of scary implications <laughs> yeah yeah, and later in the video, the, the robot manages to like pull a gun on the guy. <laughs> so, I mean, you can imagine like if you were in a in a, another part of the world where you don't know how advanced Boston Dynamics robots actually are, you might be like, "Oh shit, some crazy stuff going yeah. on in America right now." <laughs> and there's like lots of narratives around, you know, robots gonna take over the world and you know armies of robots and stuff. So. Well, exactly, you know, a lot yeah. of people are, you know, they're legitimate things that people are worried about. So it would play yeah. into that, I'm sure, for a lot of people. Yeah, these these kind of these stories and narratives they do they do feed people's people's fears and hopes for for what technology will do. And sometimes it's just massively skewed from reality. Absolutely, yeah. Um, all right, um, Elizabeth, I think I think it's now coming to a point where it's be a good time to wrap up. But um, before we let you go, I'm going to hit you with. A uh, bonus question that is very, very relevant. Um, so, this whole big problem we've been talking about about misinformation, or, or more broadly, epistemic security. Um, in the next decade or so, do you think it's going to come become worse, or do you think we're almost at the peak of it now because the internet is this relatively ungoverned space? It's a bit of a wild west situation. Oh goodness! I mean. That is a that is a very hard question. Um, I don't know. I think my inclination is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, it's going to have to hit some kind of a peak, um, at which point hopefully people will get serious about certain regulations. And um, I I I don't know, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said about seeing what happens when the children that are growing up in this world right now with such extreme polarization, with the existence of information sources they can't trust, um, and with with classes that teach them how to identify these information sources, what will happen when they grow up? Um, and yeah, so I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and I think when it gets better, it'll start getting better slowly. Uh but I'm not sure what to expect in the next 10 years. I don't know if we'll see a turnaround then, um, but we have to start working towards one now if there's going to be any hope. So there, There'll almost be a sort of natural experiment in a way that, that different countries will take different approaches, um, and espe- yeah. especially with what you just mentioned, how to talk to school kids about it. Um, yeah, it could absolutely. have a really big impact in differences between different countries. Yeah. So, so we'll see. We've got to learn from each other, see what works, see what doesn't. Um, yeah, but it'll, it'll be a trip, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to live it regardless. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no getting off. Uh, all right, Elizabeth, before, yeah. before we let you go, uh, where can people find out more about your work? And do you have social media that people can follow and become part of your, your bubble? <laughs> <laughs> become part of my bubble um yeah so uh oh i'm probably not on social media as much as i should be um but you can find me on twitter um i'm i honestly just got twitter i was a uh, 
I was a very late comer. <laughs> I think I got it when I released this report because people were like, oh, is it on Twitter? I was like, oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> um, so I am on Twitter. Um, but actually, I think I think probably just finding me on LinkedIn is probably best um, from a professional standpoint. Um, or if you go to the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence at Cambridge, their website has a profile on me with my contact information um, and more information about what I do and what I research and the cool projects that I'm involved with um, at CFI and um, and with the Philosophy of Science group as well. So those would be my recommendations. Website and LinkedIn. Fantastic. All right. Thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Really interesting conversation. Really, really fascinating. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamminson.bandcamp.com.